Welcome to a very special edition of Down the Line. This week, in a change to the advertised episode, we have a special treat for you. A new interview with Angela Richards, who played Monique Duchamp across all three series of Secret Army. As I had already interviewed Angela back in November 2020, about her time on Secret Army, for an A to Z of UK TV drama, an episode which is still available, AJ decided to cover new ground with Angela when she interviewed her this summer. Over to AJ. Today I'm joined by someone who, for Secret Army fans, needs no introduction. An incredible woman of many talents, actress, singer and songwriter, Angela Richards. Angie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you? Actually, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm in good health. Good. And how is the weather where you are today? Boiling. Apparently it might get to something like 25 or 6 degrees. So, yeah. um, but I'm indoors, luckily, looking at you on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to get redder and hotter as the interview <laughs> progresses, but we'll make it work. <laughs> so today we're going to start by talking a lot about your amazing career on stage and in musical theatre. And I'd love to start with your kind of audition process into different drama schools. I know that you had to try a couple of times before you got into RADA. So could you tell me a bit more about what that process was like? And was there a moment where you just thought, yes, I've got to keep trying to get in. This is what I want to do in life. Yes, because I actually from I can't think really way back when I, I knew I wanted to be an actress. I just just did. Went to the cinema like old kids do. And then I fell in love with Gary Cooper. So I thought I'd be an actress and I could act opposite him, which would be lovely. And then uh, at my grammar grammar school, there was a a girl who was sort of like a head girl and she used to get up and give speeches and things. And I thought, gosh, that's that's really clever. I could never do that because she was a bit posh, Um, very good diction and everything. So I thought, well, what can I do? So I joined the Leicester Amateur Dramatic Society and... uh, uh, one of my sort of first roles was Mrs. De Winter in Rebecca. And anyway, my opposite chap, he was a lot older than me and I, <laughs> I wouldn't kiss him. Fair enough. <laughs> but um, there was a girl there, a very sweet girl called Rosalind Slater. And she said she was going to try for drama school in London. And I thought, well, wow, she can, I can. Mm, however, I hadn't got any idea how to go about it. And so I decided to pay for elocution lessons. So my teacher gave me roles to learn. Notably, there was a speech from the diary of Anne Frank, which began, Look, Peter, the sky, what a lovely day. And then Queen Margaret's speech from Henry V, which began, Clifford and Northumberland, come and sit upon this molilier. That's how it sounded like with, with my Leicester <laughs> accent. <laughs> And by the way, the, the, the character's a woman of 50. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I wrote off to Lambda Central and Rada in that order, I think. So I did my two auditions. I did Lambda, then I got a letter saying no. Then I did Central, and I got another letter saying And I thought, oh, I'm obviously hopeless. And I thought, well, hmm, I don't know. I don't didn't like the pieces I was doing. I didn't feel like it was me. So I decided, I did a bit of Googling, not then, because it wasn't Googling, but looking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I decided to do BT from Roots by Arnold Wesker and Rosalind from As You Like It, which I did. And what was funny, by the way, in the toilets underneath the RADA when we were waiting to get ready, and there were two girls in cubicles next to me. 
And they really did. It was just before the breakthrough of all the accents came in. And she one was sort of saying, well, I don't know if I did awfully well, but I, I thought I did rather well. I, I did fluff a line. And I said, oh, goodness, there's no chance for me at all. Well, anyway, I did my speeches. You don't get much response. They just say, thank you very much. And then off you go. So I get home. I was brought up in a pub <clears throat> and um, there were big stairs going up to the upper stairs in the pub and uh, the letter arrived and I wouldn't open it. And I got my sister to open it. And I was on sitting on the top of the stairs and she opened it and it said, accepted. <laughs> oh dear. None of us could really believe it. Anyway, that was lovely. Then, I, then it was, well, well, how am I going to pay for it? Where will I live? London was like, you know, Mars. So I wrote to the Leicester Council and amazingly, they gave me a kind of like a scholarship or a grant, which would pay for my rada fees, which I think may, they might have been reduced, can't remember now. And, and they also gave me a living allowance, if you like, where I'd get a flat and pay the rent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think they gave it to me because it was quite unusual, perhaps, for uh, someone at Leicester, perhaps my age, to get into RADA. There was another chap, but I can't sadly remember his name now. And lots of famous people actually come from Leicester, Richard Attenborough, and many, many more, actually. Uh, anyway, that's, sorry, by the by. So that's how I got into RADA. What was that experience like of moving to London and, yeah, being in drama school? Well, you know, it's like any teenager today, if they're going to university or something. It's just, it's mind-boggling, exciting, scary thrilling all your buses you know with an upper side and uh, and then at rada uh, oh i know i'd find myself some digs in ooh, a bit, uh, i can't remember now anyway in london it wasn't very nice particularly it wasn't horrid uh but when you get to rada of course you start making friends and i made two friends and we all decided we'd rent together that was part one and brokeberry villas that's what it was called. And then uh, later on, when we sort of not semi-split up, then I moved into what is now incredibly posh, which is made of ale. Oh, oh. which was there. Shame I didn't stay. I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> so it was really just the thrill of it. And at Rada, there would be the, the local um, munching place. And you just got to know everybody. It was it was quite a place, Rada. We had a wonderful principal called John Fernald. He was just terrific. It was anyway super super memories for someone who was same thing if they're going to university. Yeah, young memories. Yeah. And I read in a few different newspaper articles from the time that it said you said that your dream was to play Rosalind in As You Like It. What was it about that role that really appealed to you? Uh, her independence, of course. The speeches were good. Um, she had a nice frock. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if you start learning something, it becomes very familiar to you, which is a lovely thing, because I'll come to that later on when I did something at RADA that became so familiar that I, I wanted to play it. So I think the Rosalind was particularly, I think, the speech. And I think, too, um, I would think that I was grateful that Rosalind partly got me into RADA, although I actually think... BT from Roots with the accent got me into RADA, you know. Okay, yeah, interesting. Mm. But am I right in thinking that you never got the chance to play Rosalind on the stage in the end? <laughs> I played uh, Celia opposite Francis de la Tour. Yeah. <laughs> in, I think Oxford, was it Oxford? I think it was. Yes, it was, I played Celia. But she was a wonderful Rosalind, so it was, and she was a lot taller than me, so that's even better, because she should be tall for Rosalind. Right, okay, so you weren't too bitter. <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> and um, I also read that while you were at RADA, you got to go on tour um, in America, which, again, sounds like another incredible experience. What was that like? You, you can't imagine, you know, how can you imagine? You go to RADA, you're going to do an actors, you know, you're going to do that. You've got lots of it. And then John Fernald says, we are going to take a group of you to America and it's going to be called Shakespeare in the Desert. Which just sounds epic, doesn't it, from the start? <laughs> so we thought, um, oh, crikey, will, will it be me or will it be, you know, sounds so over there. Anyway, I was picked along with some other people, Nicky Padgett and uh, Ronnie. Um, just died. Anyway, brilliant. It'll come to me. Uh, but anyway, we went to America and I'd never been on a plane. Mm. Gosh, it was unbelievably exciting. We, we stayed in New York, I think, for a few hours. That was a stop off because we were heading to, if you like, the desert, Arizona. 
So we did a bit, bit of New York, which I thought was wonderful. And I went to everywhere you weren't supposed to go, like Chinatown and things. Oh, and up the Eiffel Tower. Up the... <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Be a long jump, that, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> the Statue of Liberty. Took a photo. Oh, wow. That's incredible. It was. Yeah, I was with Nikki Paget. I've got a picture on the top there of both of us, the top of the Statue of Liberty. And then we got on the plane and then we went to Arizona. And then we were just amazingly welcomed it was quite wonderful there was a, a family called the Bramons who took us everywhere we went to the Grand Canyon uh we went to an, a, a drive-in movie a drive-in movie we we're in a car and we sat there and the title on the screen was Lord of the Flies now we were nudging each other and saying how fantastic a horror film but of course <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't it was the very famous book by William Golding uh, so and, and I think we all sat there with our mouths open having an experience with probably the first time of seeing uh, something beautifully acted that you had absolutely no idea how it would end mm. what the journey would be which today you can guess everything but it was so very um, impressive to me yeah. that and then the other thing, I suppose, about we went into Mexico and the other th- remembrances are lovely hotels, but very big steaks that we couldn't eat. They were huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, it just sounds so incredible. I loved it. I loved imagining younger you just, yeah, living your best life in America and Mexico. It was. <laughs> it was fantastic, I have to say. Quite wonderful. I'm very grateful. Very grateful. For someone of my age, people always say that the 60s were like the swinging 60s. Do you feel that that was the case, you know, when you were living and working in the 60s? after you graduated drama school absolutely absolutely fantastic but you see when i use the word fantastic i don't that's looking back and saying fantastic but if you're in it it was just normal yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course we went to carnaby street of course i wore mary quant of course i had a short skirt and wellington <laughs> boots and and, and uh, it oh gosh it was so free I suppose if you think about it, it was, oh, well, I don't know how many years after the Second World War, but it was so free. And we weren't all, you know, skipping around taking drugs. I did smoke pot once and I, everybody was laughing and I, I didn't laugh. And I thought, well, I couldn't quite figure out what it was about. <laughs> I did, oh no, I did smoke it one more time with Natasha Richardson in a hotel room when we were doing um, High Society. Mm-hmm. That was quite fun. And I did, actually, I did laugh a lot there. <laughs> that was very funny. But that's the only time, I think that's, some people are very free like that, and I just didn't want to be out of control. I was frightened of being out of control, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's why. But it was, yes, 60s did swing, <laughs> truly, truly. <laughs> so kind of skipping back a little bit, you made quite a rare transition from Rada straight into some big productions. What was it like working on Robert and Elizabeth and on the level and going straight into big productions like that? Very, uh, again... You're young and you sort of think, it's oh, this is just okay, this is normal. I didn't think, wow, particularly. Uh, I was at Rod and I was, John Fernand found out I could sing. And I was in the end of that years, actually it was the end of term year, when I was about to leave, that I did, um, played a part in a musical called Once Upon a Time, Michael Ashton, and uh, who, who directed, and Michael Ashton, wonderful director, who comes in later. But why not? Michael Ashton, the director, called his agent, Brian Drew and brought Brian along to see me and Brian Drew must have heard maybe they were looking for a girl to play Henrietta in uh, Robert and Elizabeth mm-hmm. and Wendy Toy the director came to see me and I think I met her maybe we had a little chat perhaps a little sing and then she said well, would you like to do it and I said yes and I kind of strolled into it as if it was an accepted thing yeah not that I felt uh, you know, snotty or anybody else hadn't got it. It just felt, oh, okay, then I'll, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then when I was, there's another thing here. When I was in Robert Elizabeth, June Bronhill, uh, um, soprano, uh, who was playing Elizabeth, became ill. And um, I think she had a sort of um, head na- nasal infection. So I, believe it or not, was the second understudy, not the first. And the first understudy was on holiday. <laughs> So in the interval, June came off on like the first scene, actually, and had to be taken to her um, dressing room. And I, then they, there was a shuffle amongst the orchestra while they changed all the, the piano parts and, the, you know, the keys, for example. They had to bring it down. And then people took me by the arm and took me to the dressing room and put a frock on me. 
And then I walked upstairs. God, has it come? I don't know how. Uh, then they put me on the bed because poor old Elizabeth wasn't very well. Um, <laughs> and then, then the curtain went up. Oh, there was an announcement. The ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm sorry, Miss June Bronhill is actually um, indisposed at the moment, and the part will be played by Miss Angela Richards. And there's a big groan. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I suppose if people, you you tend to go to the plays to see like an actress, don't yes. you? Sometimes, so yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, if you've got to see Mireille Callas and it Callas and it was Angela Richards, you'd be a bit surprised. <laughs> anyway, um, the curtain went up, and I was on the the bed, and then there was Keith, and he was smiling away, wonderfully helpful. And then I just did it. I said the lines and did it. And then there was John Clements, wonderful John Clements. He was playing the dad and he had to carry me down these little tiny steps at the back of the stage, very small little area. And when he picked me up, he nearly fell backwards because I was a lot lighter than June. <laughs> no no disrespect, disrespect to June. It was just another of those funny things that you kind of remember. And then, uh, just to cut it, sorry, a long story short, uh, I did very well in that, they believe. And so I was offered the leading role in On the Level. Uh, and that's how I got to go straight from Robert Elizabeth into On the Level at Savile. And uh, again, it, that was Wendy and um, same uh, composers. And that was Brian Epstein. That's right. The Beatles manager was the kind of producer. It was at the, done at the Savile Theatre. That was 1966. You were the... Um, yeah, the uh, football. Oh, right, we yes. World Cup, brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> when I started listening to some of the songs from these musicals, I could see uh, why they would bear you in mind. So from Robert and Elizabeth, I really enjoyed the song Hate Me, Please. Oh, yes. Yes, that was with, uh, with Jeremy Lloyd. Yes, Jeremy, who went on to write Allo, Allo. Oh, mm. OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting how things connect, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. yes. But um, if listeners haven't heard that, I would just encourage them to listen to it because it's a very fast and witty song and very enjoyable to listen to. Yeah, quite funny. Did you have any mentors or role models from that time who guided you into the in, into your career, into the industry? Yes, John Clements, because John ran the Chichester Theatre. And that led to another great, if you like, mentor. When I'd done On the Level, I thought, oh, this is just, it's too much. I, was too, I wasn't grounded. I, I wasn't learned. I wasn't theatre-learned. And um, I don't know, somehow I found myself going to John at Chichester. He probably just asked me. And I went to Chichester and to do The Beggar's Opera, uh, and to do to play play Lucy Lockett in the Beggar's Opera, and to play a smaller part made in the Doctor's Dilemma. The director was Robin Phillips. Robin Phillips, a massive influence on my life because I'd done Lucy Lockett one, uh, played Beggar's Opera once before, but not in the main role, and it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show. And he's a wonderful director. Here we go. Gooey, gooey. And I was mad for him. I absolutely adored him. I mean, it, it's a bit of a, a shame, you know, that he, he wasn't actually playing on, on, on my side. Uh, in, in, you know, uh, but uh, he was just, oh, and so beautiful. Anyway, here's another one. So we got on obviously very well. And then the leading lady in Doctor's Dilemma was Joan Plowright. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Joan is lovely. Anyway, um, and she got poorly. She had a really bad jaw teeth infection. Mm. And I was the understudy. <laughs> <laughs> and I went on in The Doctor's Dilemma by Bernard Shaw, playing opposite Robin Phillips. And I shook so much when he came near me, like, you know, because I adored him so much. <laughs> <laughs> was that something you could work into the character? Like, or was it? <laughs> no, because I, I should have been a very sort of sophisticated, mature and intelligent woman. OK, so you couldn't use it to your advantage. No, I couldn't. I did, I did try. <laughs> uh, but Robin was a big influence. And then I did another show with Robin Zorba the Greek with Miriam Carlin and Alfred Marx. Uh, very odd, but interesting. And that was at um, that was outside London just. Anyway, so that's how I got to know Robin. Sadly, he he uh, he went to Canada, Robin. He and he, he he went. I think my career might have sparked a lot more interestingly if Robin had stayed. Mm. Oh. Why, what kind of things do you think might have been different? Just getting involved in more productions with him? Or? Oh, yes. I would, I'd like always to have worked with him a lot. Yes. Because you get to know 
a lot of people will say this, a lot of actors will say um, that they have their favourite director or they get on Terry well, they don't have to, they have a kind of sign language or, or they understand you, even with all your massive faults, of which I had many. So they kind of understand you and then you just feel kind of safer. Mm. You rely on them. Yes. Well, that's lovely to hear about about those people. I have to look more into some of the names. Yes. Do you think, again, this is um, just something I read from a newspaper interview, but you mentioned that it might have been more advantageous to have done rep theatre, you know, first, uh, rather than going straight into musicals. Do you still feel that's the case today? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I do. I think you get your grounding and your training there. You get, of course, you get loads of things that are hard, like how to speak properly. And, and, and uh, how to sort of almost walk properly, not quite. And music, of course, they, they, they really helped me musically mm. uh, to learn. Although most of the music feeling I had came from actually my parents, even though, you know, they were just ordinary people, but they did love opera and classical music. So I had that feeling about me. And recognising, if you recognise a, a talent in a, a piece of writing or a piece of music, or it touches somewhere, that... Um, it doesn't go away from you. It it um it seeps into your knowledge and your being, mm. uh, and that kind of makes you, I think, hopefully, a better artist if you like, a better understanding of it of music. I can't read or write music. I did play piano once, and I managed to learn green sleeves, <laughs> but that was it. And uh, I regret that deeply. Regret it deeply. It's not too late. You could still. Well, no, not Give really. There are better people out there. <laughs> I'd still like to go horse riding, but I'm not sure that I could. I could, actually, I could have a ladder get me up there. <laughs> so that might be a, a nice chance to, just to touch upon. Um, yeah, I read that your dad had a very large record collection and you mentioned to me in a previous call that your mum was always kind of singing and humming around the home. Yeah. Dad was dad loves dramatic music. Like uh, these are the pe- names you probably won't remember. Like there's Ravix in Landau, and they played the Glass Mountain and um, things like da 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 da. Anyway, and he would play the records upstairs in the, what was called the lounge. It's where they gave wedding receptions. And Mum would be humming around the kitchen, and she would tell stories. And it's very fascinating how you learn. And you think, okay. Oh, Ange, I'm going to go on. Um, so she was humming. Um, wait a minute. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And, I, and she said, now she said, that is the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. And, I, and I'm listening. She says, and this, he escaped from this very big chateau and he rode across the sea to freedom. Well, I remembered all that and all the other things she sang. And one day, I could never find it and never knew what it was. I, I used to hum it to myself and things. But anyway, I'm driving in a car and it comes on and it was the Overture of the Wasps from Vaughan Williams. Oh, okay. and, it, and there, there opened me up to, uh, if anyone came to me and said, have you heard uh, like Leontine Price singing La Rondinée, for example? And I say, no, I haven't. And they would say, well, listen to it. You pass on something of a like mind that you think if you haven't heard it, listen. And that's how I learned to listen. Mm. And then I learned to listen about opera and then the stories and what happened at the end and who jumped off that river or bridge or, and that became another passion. Yeah. And that's in- incredible. It sounds like your mum was almost giving you like a, a kind of mm. classes in storytelling, you know, and, and music at the same time. I think must have, her family must have, she was Italian. Oh. I mean, not, I mean, not straight away Italian, I mean, third Italian or something. Right. And that's okay. So it's Italy. Okay. So somewhere in her background, her granny must have been doing it, Mm, you know? mm, Maybe they sang on street corners like Gigli or Pavarotti or something. And was she a good singer? Could she hold a tune as well? I'm sure she could have been easily. I think we, my sister can sing. So I think that is to hold a tune. Yeah. and so I, I think you must inherit something, don't you think, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, in your vocal cords or whatever. <laughs> so just to quickly refresh listeners' memories, you've worked on an incredible range of shows such as Applause, Cats, Cabaret, just to name a few. But what have been some of your favourite productions to work on? Um, Happy End. Happy End at Oxford, which did come into London. And the reason, and I'll go back to that, is when I was at RADA, um, I think I was a, uh, in like a chorus to a little production at RADA of Happy End. And that was my introduction. 
introduction to Breck file okay uh and I was mad for it I love the uh the growly depth of it and the in, the intelligence of the of the lyrics and the difference to being uh, very Europe um, not European but English if you like I loved it absolutely mad for it Bob Hoskins played my opposite and that was my absolute favorite along with Beggar's Opera Again, if listeners haven't um, listened to the songs for that, they absolutely must. And it kind of gave me an inkling of why it might be your favourite. So um, last night I was listening to, is it Surabaya, Johnny? Oh, yes. What an incredible song. Oh, it's wonderful. You can get it on, I think it might be on a, oh, I know, I did a one of those in, where we all get together on the BBC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a music, uh, I can't think of his name, that lovely presenter. An arts programme, and I sat... I think, was it called something like Songs on Screen or something like that? Yeah, I can't remember. I, th- I, I may have it on a bit of a CD or something somewhere. Anyway, it's... A, sorry, bye, Johnny. Oh, it's, it's mature, you see. I felt mature when I sang it. Mm. And did you find it kind of... It To me, it sounded more of a challenging song to perform yes. than others. Well, it's if you are saying, uh, you know... Surabaya Johnny, why'd you act so low? Surabaya Johnny, my God, but I love you though. Surabaya Johnny, why did you leave me so? You have no heart, Johnny, but I do love you so. And what's the line about um, take that pipe out of your mouth? Oh, yes. Or something, yeah. I was like, oh, I bet Angie loved that line. (laughs) I did take that pipe out of your mouth, you rat. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Loved it, loved it, yeah. Yeah. And was there anything else about Happy Ends that made it such a favourite for you? Um, was it like the cast as well? or? Oh, yes, yes, it was a very good cast. Holly Palance, Jack's daughter, was in it. Uh, Bob Hoskins, as you know, Veronica Clifford. It was a very, very, very ensemble work. You weren't just, you know, the, the top notch. It was a... It was when you got together and, the, and just everything about it, the costumes, the, 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 the design, the direction, it was just... To me, it felt almost complete. I, I felt it, I, it, it belonged to me. I didn't want anyone else to do it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love that. I also wondered if like the, it, it felt like a show, I don't know, with a good point to make. And I wondered if that appealed to you as well. Yes, yes. I, it's very difficult, this one, because you could say without maturity that you recognise something, you know, in your life. And I think it's to do with, uh, regret. I think it's to do with sorrow. I think it's to do with anger. I think it's to do with life. Mm. I think it's to do with things you've missed or, yeah. you know, I think uh, I think it is. Yeah. I used to, I'm just a bit sentimental, but when I, f- when I first started to sing a romantic or love song, I always sang it to my mother. Who had mm. so, uh, I was often somewhere else when I sang to my mother. Now, whether that was good for the audience or bad for the audience, I don't know. I just... I went somewhere else. I, I sang to someone else's heart, I think. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what I felt. I recognised something in it. And I just, and I was very in admiration of the writing and the lyrics. Mm. And yeah. um, just to um, fill listeners in, so your mum passed away when you were 18, didn't she? Yes, yes. And, and yeah. so I can understand that. Maybe there's something in that play or those kinds of songs where you're working out some of that that grief I don't know I think so very much and I think it would be same for any person out there who's lost someone not being an actor I mean if a piece of music is played yeah yeah that's incredibly memorable for them and takes them to that place or back something very precious and good as with anything any any kind of music you have incredible connections to it don't you and so to fill listeners in my mum also died when I was a teenager but I still can't listen to some records that she used to listen to or think you know things like that because it's too too hits too close to home but then others I think singing is a good form of therapy in a way because you you can just get it out and explore all of those. You have a little. You get in the bars and sing, or can you sing? Um, not very well, but enough to audition and get into a school choir. <laughs> <laughs> but not good enough for a solo. So that's my range of talent. <laughs> but I did. I was always in school choirs, and so was I. I never went to the front. It just was in the choir. Yeah, yeah. I was raised in church, a lovely church. It wasn't like a um, you know, bash you on the head with religion church, but it was. I don't know why it had these connections, but it put on a panto every year. So I was always, yes. you know, a panto yes. chorus girl yes. and in Greece at school and that kind Aww. of thing. So loved it. 
But I digress. I've taken you off topic. That's all right. I think we should touch on applause next. Okay. So um, you started in this with Lauren Bacall. Yep. Sounds like, again, another incredible production to work on. It was lovely, I have to say. Uh, the audition was quite good, actually, because I went along with this audition for applause to play Eve Harrington. And I wasn't really sure. I wasn't too bothered, to be honest. I don't know why. <laughs> and then I was up there. They must have seen loads of people. And then I did something, whatever, I sang something. And then I think the director said, and uh, can you tell us anything else about yourself? And I, I don't know why I just said, well, I've got very good legs. <laughs> and then there was this massive, <laughs> a really big roar of laughter from the back, because <laughs> it's Betty, uh, because, Lauren, Betty, because. And when she laughs, I mean, she laughs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and she's got this very deep voice, really deep voice. I think she went up a mountain and, and, and screamed a lot or something to get her voice down early in her uh, life. Um, anyway, so she thought, oh, she's obviously funny. Let's get her. Yeah. And then working with her, I, I loved her. She got big feet, uh, but she had this cashmere coat. And I love this cashmere coat. And I'd never, you know, I wasn't grand. So I thought, I'm going to have a cashmere coat. And hers was cream. Mine was brown. Anyway, I love that coat. But of course, cashmere, it frays at the elbows. So it doesn't last that long. But I felt very starry mm, when I wore yeah, the coat. I, bet. I didn't like the director, though. His name was Ron Field. I didn't like him. What did you struggle with about him? Uh, I was definitely misogynist, but a gay one. Right. And um, it was it was a bit of his own personality. Yeah. He thought a lot of himself. I know what he said. I never forget this. First day of rehearsals, got some lovely people there. We'd have to look them up to tell you all again. And he walked on to the um, onto the you know the, the rehearsal room into the rehearsal room. He said, "Right." He said, "Well." As far as I'm concerned, this is just putting on an old dressing gown. But, well, let's get on with it. Those were the first words he spoke to the cast. Oh, dear. It's not inspiring confidence or leadership, is that, is it? No, I looked at him and I thought, quite a lot, actually. I thought of a few things I'd like to say, but perhaps that's why I didn't like him. And there you go. I can understand that. Anyway, I had, I had quite nice reviews, so it worked out in the end. <laughs> I think that's a, a, an understatement. You had raving reviews for that production. Also some great songs you get. Best Night of My Life. Yes. Which you kind of get to perform almost in a, a two-hander scene with uh, Lauren Bacall. Yeah. I, I was very sad. You weren't in the film's production of that. They, no. they, I looked that up online and I was like, I'm sorry, where, where is Angie? <laughs> they, did, um, in, they did it in America first. And then they recorded the LP CD in America. Yeah. And I hoped they would do one in England, but they didn't. I can understand why. It's all about if you say money and it's already been done. I'm mean, perfectly happy with the, the young lady who played it in America. So I wasn't really, I was a bit disappointed, but I wasn't sort of, I understood it, you know. So I, last night I watched the filmed version, which I think they did at Pinewood really? Studios. But uh, yeah, someone, someone else was playing Eve, so, which was greatly disappointing. It wasn't I you. I don't think I've seen it. Have I? I can't remember. Oh, well. Good luck to whoever she did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember her name now off the top of my head. But yeah, what were those, um, you know, moments like where you're, it's just you and Lauren Bacall on stage and you're singing a song like Best Night of My Life? That sounds incredible. You know, she liked me. Okay. If you know, if you're you're playing opposite somebody that likes you, also knows your, um, oh, Angie this or, oh, Angie that, or she, we were talking and singing to each other. And talking, and I tell you what, she taught me a very important lesson because I had no idea I was doing it. She taught me consistency. So I thought, you just go on stage, you do your bit, you know, that's lovely. And oh, I quite enjoyed that. That's nice. I come off. And then someone will say, well, you, you looked a bit, you know, um, as if you didn't care. Oh, uh, okay. And I realised that this has been a big bugbear. I don't know what it is. It's in my um, persona or my body language. I look as if I'm totally relaxed and completely at home. Don't ask. And to some degree, yes, I am. But it can give the impression that I'm not actually working. Right. And after, and so I might be doing a line slightly, no, maybe not so much differently, but perhaps it sounded very tame or lame or the same. And in a way, Betty taught me that you have to have a kind of consistent energy. And almost I had to prove on occasions that I was working. Mm. So I would actually try to look like I was working. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's the most odd thing. Uh, a, friend, a young, when I was in uh, uh, Robert and Elizabeth, and Johnny Parker came from America. He was in, he played one of the brothers. And he came up to me one day and he said, they'll never understand you, you know. And I said, what do you mean? He said, they won't understand you. So he'd already caught on to whatever that something was that made people think, either I'm too big for my boots. Actually, one critic did say, Miss Richards looks as if she has another source of income. <laughs> that was when I played the other uh, in, in Beggar's Opera that wasn't the Beggar's Opera, the earlier one. I must have looked so sort of, I think I'll just stroll on and do a bit and stroll off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what it was. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I'm trying to get better. Do you think you taught her any lessons in the business in return? <laughs> no, I don't think so, because Betty was very much her own person. And it, when you, if you do the life story, if you like, of Betty, then she was in her first major film at about, I think, the age 18. Mm. And she met Bogey then, very early. Bogey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Month. <laughs> and she learned massively quickly how to deal with she was quite naive but then it became what she would wear how her hair would be studio this studio that where you're seen and then it would be taken to the best places and the best yachts and the best world and the best frocks and the, and all the and she grew up learning how to be what they like a star if that's mm, the word mm. you know and so she was very already together there and not saying that was a happy state to be always yeah but she knew how to handle it yeah she could walk into the shops Savile Row and she would just walk in they knew her and she would order some shirts for herself handmade exact cuffs and the length of her um her arms you know and there's one particular tailor she went to and um she would then go home with eight particular shirts and beautiful British cotton and design because that's what she did she knew everywhere and she could go to Rome and walk into yeah I don't know somewhere Chanel or Givenchy no. yeah everyone's got measurements on file <laughs> yes kind of I wouldn't be at all surprised no true. what an incredible uh, life there's a lot of rich people like yeah. that I would say yeah. <laughs> yeah it must be <laughs> are there any other shows that you've been in that you'd like to mention every single show has a merit of its kind mm. You know, there would be like a song you would think, that's great, I really enjoyed that. Or the director, I loved, yeah, Rufus, Rufus Norris, who runs the National. He was a lovely director on, um, yeah, on uh, Cabaret. Nice cast. Oh, and, and um, Amy Nuttall, who played um, Sally, Sally Bowles. Yes, she was lovely. Um, she was a nice cast. And it was a very good production, actually. It was enjoyable. Uh, what else? I can't remember what I've done. Loads of things. Yeah, yeah. Until I start talking to someone like you, and I don't do this. We don't all actors go to bed at night thinking, you know, I mean, I suppose I could go to my biog and have a good look or something. But I'm trying to think what else I've enjoyed. I think you'd have to look them up and then ask me. <laughs> well, uh, one that might just be nice to quickly mention is um, you took over Elaine Page's role in Cats. Oh, in Cats. So you were singing one of the most famous yes. songs in musical yeah. theatre. You were doing memory. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> I was in it for 18 months. It was very good. I got paid a nice lot of money. <laughs> I managed to spend most of it. But anyway, um, it was, yeah, it was not, it was okay. I mean, I got up there. But I got indulgent, you know. You get This is a lovely lesson to learn, and it would be going out there, singers, don't listen to yourself. Do not listen to yourself. So I started um, singing uh, Midnight, whatever. And then I started to get slower and slower because I was really indulging in myself. But that was so <laughs> oh, and I could hold that note forever and what have you. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine it's quite a good song to wallow in. It is. And I think the orchestra must have been going absolutely bonkers. I'm quite sure they were. <laughs> She's slowing down again. Yeah. It wasn't until I recorded it one day and played it back to myself. I was appalled. I was absolutely shocked. And uh, I did it. But what was great about that production was um, I did a little sort of, um, it was a mid, I, I was leaving. So we decided, I decided we'd have a, a going away um, little theatre party after, but but a, a little show. So I organised this show. And I think I came down from the heavens on a sort of rope and a swing. And then I got off and, and I'd written something, which was very funny. And I, I, I don't know, I just said, I'm, am, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to say what I, I did? My name is Grizabella. I'm a pussycat. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've 
I'm in love with a fella, must do something about that. But he has found another girl and, and left me here in tears. And, and it just goes on to say, and I'll never get to marry Andrew now because he'd got Sarah Brightman. <laughs> so I'd written a pity song, uh, which I, it's probably why I never worked for Andrew again. <laughs> Not that I miss it, I have to say. <laughs> uh, it was very funny. Anyway, and I did roller skating to You're the One That I Want. No way. <laughs> yeah, we roller skated around the stage uh, in, in the gear. In the gear, you know, what, what what's named gear, the, the tight pants and the thing. And it, it was a massive success. I had an agent who wasn't mine saying it was one of the best nights in the theatre he'd ever spent. <laughs> I just, there was, there was so, it was so funny. It was funny. Was this um, before or after? Is it called Starlight Express? What's the show where they do it on roller skates? No, no, I, oh, no, that's in uh, You're the One That I Want. No, I'm just thinking, though, that there is a musical where they do yes, there was. skate around the stage, so I'm wondering if you um, if you gave him the idea for that. I could have. <laughs> I should get royalties, shouldn't I? Yeah, that's that's the train of thought that I had, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. I love that. Another thing I would just like to mention is I really enjoy your, when you do songs like He Has Refinement, Oh, oh, yes. And you do the childish voice. Yeah. That's just hilarious. I think you do a very good rendition of those songs. Oh, that was, was that Cole? Yeah. Um, no, he, no, it was on, oh, it was a Sondheim, wasn't it? I lose track. He had, yeah, he had. Yeah, yeah. He find men. Exactly. My other story, you know, going back to the Statue of Liberty. Yes. And when I was doing Cole, I had a song called, um, oh, it's called Lost Liberty Blues. Okay. Yeah. That's, that is funny. You get the record of Cole. It's very funny. I could sing it to you, but you should buy it. It's really funny. Yeah, I will. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. And did you ever have any um, miss? So, for example, in Secret Army, you mentioned how once the curtains fell down and that was very oh, yeah. funny. Did you ever have any kind of um, similar mishaps on, on stage? Anything funny happen over the years? The only one of them was, you know, you do a matinee. And, um, of course, you have to rely on certain things like traffic and one thing or another. But I think one day, I have no idea why I, I didn't think I had a matinee. And I remember just jumping up wherever I was at home, when, you know, made a bell, and think, oh, my God, it's a matinee. Oh, my God. I got in, uh, whatever, a taxi or but I don't know. I flew to the theatre and they were literally getting my understudy on, li almost literally getting her on and I actually kind of like ran past her and went straight on stage oh no way but I'm telling you there's another thing to tell all those would-be's you only do it once yeah you learn after that well everything everything I've learned you never do it again yeah never do it again you know uh, I'm not comparing my um teenage youth theatre experiences to being on the West End but my uh, my own fluff up was we had marks on the stage and they said it was like you know tape that glows in the dark that's right you stand there which I was skeptical of yeah. to start with but yeah so you know was dark my scene came on sat down on the chair in what I thought was the right place the spotlight comes up and only my knee is illuminated <laughs> so the first thing I had to do was drag the chair forward so that I was lit <laughs> that's normal there was uh, there is one episode was in um, on the level that's right there was a a number where they brought some um, like as if you were in a hospital and they brought trellies, trolleys across the stage with so yeah. dead bodies in with a sheet over. <laughs> and then there was one time, because I was, Gary Bond was my co. Oh, he's a wonderful Gary Bond. And um, we were quite, quite badly behaved. This is one of the things I'm bad at. I, I corpse quite dreadfully. And <laughs> when I've got someone who corpse equally dreadfully, it's, it's bad. It's bad. It does alienate an audience or they join in quite often, which is nice. <laughs> but uh, that one was, um, and I, I, I couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. It was one of those things that sets you off, and you all, and almost the curtain comes down because you can't go on. <laughs> and the other one was when I was doing a Sondheim at the German Street or the other one opposite, and uh, I sang. Oh, I know, good times and bum times. Okay, so it goes. It always starts the same. Good times and bum times. I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Mm, fresh something, sometimes, sometimes does. Pretzels and beer and I'm here. Then I got to the next verse, which is good times and bum times. I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Good times and bum times. I couldn't think of the next line whatsoever. Uh, and so I went, I did all that. Good times and zabba-da-dee-da-ba-boo. <laughs> yeah, style it out. <laughs> I did that. And then the audience was 
beside themselves laughing. And afterwards, the director came over and he said, what are you on? <laughs> Since I've never taken a drug in my life, <laughs> I just I just dried completely. But entertainingly continued. You should get prizes for that, you know. Yeah, the show must go on. Yeah. Yeah. Moving us on into a, a different topic uh, now. we You kind of mentioned it a bit already, how one director was very um, sexist. And Andy and I talk a lot in the Secret Army podcast about the sexism either from behind the scenes, you know, from directors or in the production or, but uh, one thing that I wondered was what was it like in theatre? Did you find that it was a less sexist or more sexist industry than television? It's very difficult to answer that question. I'll tell you why. Quite a lot of directors are gay for a start. Yeah, I'm learning that. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's um, a simpatico gay, which is good, that's yeah. fine. And you also get gays that can do it better than you or sing better than you or are angsty about it or picky about it. Uh, I won't go into names because that's not fair. Mm. But but um, and you you found yourself sort of going to the side and sort of saying, oh, well, it's just, you know, he's having a day or something like that. So it didn't it wasn't sexist in that way. It was more um, artistically um jealousy to some degree quite a lot of it okay got you with I've not really come across that many theatre directors that I've found to be particularly misogynist I think it's because because it's broader in the sense there's there's a lot going on there's a lot of women out there on the floor doing um, you know putting you in your place walking around with a um, you know secretary not secretary but you know guiding and all of that and end up in the box you know uh, but um, I find it more so in television. It seems to be very much more, particularly BBC, I guess, uh, a man's uh, domain mm. when it came to, particularly, of course, a war series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that that's in their psyche. They think that's, that's you know, and our, it was wonderful, I have to say, our producer. Are you thinking of Jerry, Jerry Glaster? Of course, yeah. Um, our producer, Jerry, um, he he was just he'd been in the war. He was a flyer. He'd been uh, he'd been um, he'd had a, awards as it so for bravery. He knew his stuff. Of course he did. There was a great respect from us there. But directors are a different thing. They're on the floor. They're looking at you, they're telling you what to do. And mostly it all makes sense, you know, stand over there, walking through that door and so forth. And, and then really it's left up to you to whether you uh, respond to the actor and his position, uh, whether he's going to take a long time to say his line because he wants the camera on him longer or whatever. And did that happen on Secret Army? Oh, yes, it did. Mm. <laughs> or those that had more experience and knew that the camera was on them. Um, yeah. But with directors, we didn't have any women directors on Secret Army, which is a shame. Yeah, and no female writers. No, no. And I, yes, and I wanted, I did want to do a script for them, but it was, it was practically the end of the series. Um, yes, the writers were. There. Oh, that's really interesting, though. What ideas did you have for a potential story? Oh, well, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we keep rescuing people who want to be rescued? What if we rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued? What if you rescue or persuade i think it was alan had a maybe a nephew this is my idea and the nephew was in the young nazis party oh okay and what if alan thought this influence he's never going if i can't get him out of the country yeah that he would be physically kidnapped and taken out oh okay yeah probably with alan with him so that he was away from the influence of the the schooling of nazi beliefs etc 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 and, and so forth. And I thought that would be a really good idea to do someone who didn't want to be rescued. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, oh, that's really Never interesting. Yeah. Oh, no. And um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, someone that you enjoyed working with, Moira Armstrong, who you worked yeah. with in on Villette, I think. Yeah. But what do you think someone like Moira, if she would have had a chance, say, to direct Secret Army, what should, would she have brought? to it oh but what would be different to her style to say the, the men who directed secret army oh a kind of um a balance a calmness and i don't mean just because she's a woman she's calmer a balance it was like she would see a larger picture she would see the relationships in a much more balanced and uh, wider look between the men and the women and the women and the women and the men and the men she was, uh, she's still actually with us, isn't she, Moira? Yeah, she's must be in her mid-90s, though. Yeah, I think she is. Just so. It was like, you never, you, you know, you might go to the side and talk, I could talk to Juliet and say, oh, that's, I don't like that, it isn't working. You wouldn't do that with Moira. You would either go up to Moira and say, I don't know, what do you think? 
or you just completely trust what she wanted you to do. Mm-hmm. On the opposite side of that as well, just quickly, there was one director I did like on uh, and see. That was Victor Zutelis because Victor's was off the wall. It was quite wonderful. And he and he was like, he really admired you. He treated women a little bit like the boys. You know, he wouldn't say, oh, you can't get on that motorbike or no, you can't do that little thing. He was very... He was, we really liked Juliet and I really liked Victor Zutelis. Yes. Okay. So that was one director we did like. Okay. And there are others, I'm sure. I just can't remember who they are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could if I was given the list. Sorry about that. If you're listening. I don't mean it meanly. I'm just, it's, you know, an age thing. Yeah. And also, um, I'm asking you about, you know, dozens of different productions. So I wouldn't expect you to be, you know. <laughs> oh, good. On to my next question. Yeah. I wanted to slip this question in just because I think a lot of LGBT history and perspectives get erased and don't get talked mm. about that much. But mm. I am a queer woman and I was just really intrigued in the Series 3 DVD interview that you received lots of fan mail from gay women about Secret Army. And I won- wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that. I think we became, Juliet and I kind of, if you like, be- sort of became aware of it sort of gradually. It wasn't like... I think it was because the the first time real well I think real friendship between two women women you know before Thelma and Louise was seen in a way on TV and I mean just real friendship and the uh, reliance upon each other uh, where lives are at stake including you mm, okay. yeah I was aware and again, I can't put my finger on it, honestly. It's just um, when I was doing some theatre work, I did have a, couple, a few times, actually, I would get the odd letter or I would get, there was a young girl came to my dressing room for, I think it was applause, actually. Yes, it was. And um, I never push people away or say, somebody wants to come talk to you. I say, OK, fine. And she just walked through and she said, I love you. And I said, and I knew immediately, I said, I think that's really, I'm very, very, very flattered. I, I, I must tell you, I'm not gay, but I do understand. And then she talked to me about her, obviously, so she talked a bit, a little bit there, about her life. And then there was another girl who found out where I lived and she she could see, I was in the basement flat, she could see a picture of my mother on the wall and she went away and painted an oil painting of her and gave it to me. Oh, that's quite intense. If you didn't know that was happening did she, what did she do just knock on the door and yes give you the painting yeah but I had spoken a little bit before oh okay it wasn't just like here's a painting no, I spoken to it before. <laughs> okay got you but it's just um whatever your persona is that you don't recognize which I've just described earlier as what do people see when they look at you mm. on stage don't forget because it's like a it's like a, a pretend world like if you were looking a movie star and you imagined that you, like I did with Gary Cooper, that I would be playing a scene with Gary Cooper and I loved. There's something about you, and it's not just me, there's lots and lots of people, stars and so on stage, that people somehow feel this, this connection to. Mm. I've had this and with, uh, and with men and with gay men as well. So they seem to recognise or think something. And I would never dispute the fact that 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 mustn't that's not a bad thing at all oh yeah so uh, I, I understood it so when we come to secret army and uh, we did we get and fans who sort of stayed fans and some came and visited and things when they when they were girls it was said they they felt something that made them feel better that juliet and i had a friendship that they wished they'd had you know what I'm saying? Oh, okay, yeah. You know, that they, and that they weren't ashamed of. You know, they didn't have to be ashamed. When I was growing up, my best friend, her name was Val. And there uh, we used to walk down the street, Val and I, you know, with our hands together, uh, throwing them backwards and forwards, walking down the street like that. And one day she took her hand away from me. And I looked at her and she said, we shouldn't do that. I didn't know what she was talking about because it, it was whenever things had began to say you shouldn't be doing that, right? Right. Which began to creep. Well, it did. You know, it crept, it crept in, especially in the late sixties, and uh, and and all the stuff that went on. You know, until yeah, Bert Bogard made a very good movie that sort of helped all that. But um, so it's so if there is something in your persona that they recognise and makes them feel better or connected, as that's a good thing. That's a good thing. 
Yeah. And did you find then, because you're doing a lot of musical theatre and things, did you have a lot of gay followers as well? Where people would yes. notice that people would kind of follow your career? There's, I mean, I didn't encourage them either. And I was very kind <laughs> always. Uh, it's only because it's time consuming. I wasn't a big star with a secretary or something. Yeah. <laughs> but there's someone in Spain and England, of course, and in Sweden, and of course, Belgium. Oh, I love this. International, international followers. Oh, yes, because because of Secret Army. Sure, yeah. And where we filmed, you know, and everything. Well, it's bit, particularly the war. And so, yes. Oh, and always very lovely people as well. So you just... And uh, and some that have stayed, if you like, with me that came to the theatre and became a fan. Mm. And then they uh, they kind of, I mean, it's awful, but they kind of grow older with you. Uh, so they made their own journey. Yeah. And they have their... Uh, a friendship and an, and, a, and, a, and an affection for you, which is lovely. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing, sharing your memories of that. Now, I've, before I, we need, we need to start wrapping up. I've kept you on the, on the phone too long. Have you? But um, what I uh, like to ask uh, when I've been chatting with someone is just, is there something that I've not thought to ask today that you would like to talk about? And that's as broad, that could be anything. Um. Oh dear. It's kind of, okay. The secret army, should never be, to me, maligned or made fun of. And everyone will know what I'm referring to. And it's because people died. People risked their lives. And also, when men were at war, it was the women that were doing all that. And if you look at, and I'm sure there are, there are books on the um, the numbers of lifeline people and so forth. And, and of course, naturally, we know that, the soldiers and the war and everything. Died. So I don't think that it's, I don't find it amusing to make fun of people who have risked their lives and lost loved ones in those situations. And so I am, I'm disappointed the popularity of a lower low, which I never watch, never will, obviously, uh, because I find it crass. What I've seen a bit, you know, clips and things. Yeah. So I find it disappointing that it's popular. And I know there'll be massive backlash. Oh, it's fun and it's very well written and it's whatever it is. I've no idea. Uh, and it's and beautifully acted. And I'm very sure it is for the, the, the people in it and the actors. And, you know, it's a job. Uh, but I make no um, apologies for my dislike of it, and that's that. And um, I think the statistic that drives it home is for every one person that they got down the line, somebody died in who was associated with that escape line. If you do have statistics like that, it would be interesting to, I don't know, uh, research them, and then mm. you could bring them up um, with regard to the, the, what I've just told you, and you could say... And I'm not the only one that thinks it, obviously. Yeah. So if, if you, like um, Juliet, we both feel the same about it very strongly. So, so I don't think you'll uh, know this about me, actually, but Secret Army really reignited a love of history for me. And I actually now volunteer at a war museum. Do you? And I, I help pass on that kind of knowledge my specialist subject is more tenko related so okay. it's more about women who were interned in the yes, far yes. east but i i did read a lot about um women in european resistance movements as well in the escape line and the comet line yes. as well but yeah so I've, I've been to like history research conferences and i've even met people who were interned by the japanese in the second world war so, so yeah, well done it's, it's been an incredible few years but uh what i think is there's an opportunity so one reason i wanted to do this podcast was there's an opportunity, I think, for people my age and younger who haven't heard of Secret Army or LOLO. Mm. We can get in with, we can indoctrinate them with the, yes. uh, you know, what they should know about and we can forget LOLO. To take the right path. <laughs> I, I admire you. That's very good. I've been to the War Museum, yes. And the, the Air Force Museum. I've been to, when I was, when I lived in London, of course, particularly. And actually we did a visit. We did a visit. It's just come to me. We did a visit. Was that when it was the exhibition, the Secret Army exhibition? That's it. My oh gosh, you see, I'd forgotten that. Yes, I'm very proud of the, I suppose, a tiny bit of contribution to that history, if you like. Um, in terms of, it's a good series. It's an honourable series. It's, you know, it couldn't be made today. I dare say it's. It isn't full of foul language and car chases and, and all that. Yeah. But what I think is, for me, 
when I am talking about it with people my age or younger who haven't heard of it and who don't understand why I like all these old shows, <laughs> what I say is that it it really brings out we we are taught history at school through a male lens, and we can leave school thinking that the Second World War was men fighting with men. Yes, with more men about mm. more men, and mm. <laughs> that the women just maybe went into the factories, and that was yeah. kind of it. And yeah. it, what shows like Secret Army demonstrate is is all these amazing other things they've done, and through mm. that, it's such mm. a good vehicle. A starting point to research about women's history. So I've learned about the Atta girls and Lumberjills and people who listened in the Y service, you know, all of that kind of thing as well. So and why don't you? You should make a documentary, shouldn't you? I know, yeah, a podcast about different figures in history. Yeah. It... I, mean, I mean, do it as a, you know, it's not about suffragettes, it's about what happens after all of that mm. and, and, and very little change in a sense yeah, after. Yeah. Okay. And how stories are told and yeah. how, how no one thought that yeah. all of these experiences were worth showing, yeah. I think. So, yeah, that's what Secret Army is so wonderful for. What about the, and, and the women that were killed in factories with, when they were making the bombs? and uh, Exactly, yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a, oh, God, a very famous, actually, it is a German woman, a very famous one. Hitler thought she was wonderful. Oh, like the flyers, but the the German yes. women who flew, like the woman who flew for Hitler. Yeah. I think she's dubbed. I forget yeah. her name, but yeah, I've got the book on my bookshelf. But you know, there are women. Sorry, no, I've got, I've got no go on, go but for it. Yes, just just that um, it's not just like it, it's it's immensely broad. Women's uh, contribution to the Second World War. It's enormously broad. In every single sense, on the farm, on the land, in the factories, in the air, uh, cleaning them, mending them, fixing the machines, uh, everything that fell. And then what happens after the war? Oh, the men come back and they go back to their kitchens and their aprons. Yeah. There's almost like Not a back push, isn't there? Because the 50s is a lot about yeah. you know being a good housewife, you know, and yeah. yeah. And all the rules that are still in place, like if you're married, you can't carry on working like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, BT from Roots and the thing about women. You should read BT for uh, read um, Roots by Arnold Wesker, because that's about a woman fighting uh, uh, stigma, being a woman anyway. Yeah, good for people who uh, who are feminists. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it's very nice talking to you. Oh, sorry. So uh, one last question, which is just uh, when so so as a way for people to say thank you for coming on the show and. We ask everyone who comes on, is there a charity that you support? And what we will do is we will ask listeners to make a donation to that charity as a way to give something back for this interview today. Is there a charity that you would like yes. us to mention? Yes, the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, the PDSA. They don't get any government support. The PDSA. Thank you. Well, thank you again so much for your time today. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure and honour to oh. to speak with you. And I'm sure listeners um, will feel the same. Okay. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Hi, it's AJ again here. I'd like to say another huge thank you to Angie for so generously giving up her time to be a guest on the podcast. It was such an incredible experience to chat with her it meant so much to me, and I know it will mean a lot to you too, dear listeners. So please do think about making a donation of any amount you wish to her chosen charity, which is the PDSA. The website is pdsa.org.uk, and you'll find the donate button in the top right-hand corner of their website. You can also donate by phone on 0800 917 2509, although lines are only open from 9 till 5 Monday to Friday. When making a donation, please quote Angela Richards' Secret Army podcast, as this will help us to work out an overall total raised by us Secret Army fans. Finally, don't forget to check us out on social media at Secret Army Pod on Instagram or Twitter if you haven't already, as we are holding a special Christmas giveaway of some of the recordings and books mentioned in this interview. Thank you again for listening. See you next time. The love of our lives is made up of hellos and goodbyes And then comes the day when one of you cries You cry for all our yesterdays For the honey and the wine 
the summer sun is pale And there is no more time For all our yesterday Down the Line will be back with a special festive episode on Christmas Day and then resume its review of Series 1 with an exploration of Episode 7, Lost Sheep, on Saturday the 6th of January, in our new regular time slot of the first Saturday of the month. Yes, we're going monthly from 2024. We can't wait to share more Secret Army goodness with you in the new year, and there's so much exclusive content to come. Thanks for your support and feedback, and most of all, for listening. Happy holidays to you all. Is made up of hellos and goodbyes, and then comes the day when one of you cries. You cry for all our yesterdays, for the honey and the wine. Now the summer sun is. And there